This is an ABC podcast. So don't tell anyone I told you this, but here's what you need to do if you want to make a nuclear bomb. First, you need uranium. That's the easy bit. You can just dig that up out of the ground. But getting a lump of uranium and trying to turn it into a bomb is like being handed a fully mixed rum and coke in a glass and being told to get the rum back out of it. Now, thankfully, you don't need to figure out how to do this. First in a test in the United States, New Mexico desert. It was figured out in America in the 1940s. Then 5,000 miles away at Hiroshima and then again at Nagasaki came the world-shaking explosions of the atomic bomb. Since then, the US has been trying to stop other countries from copying them. But if you get all the way to the end of the process, America is bound to take you very seriously. Additionally, if you do get a nuclear weapon, history tells us you are very unlikely to be overthrown in a revolution. It's a hard road. A lot of people don't make it. But if you're ready, you'll need to smash up that uranium rock into something called yellow cake. And then you heat it up to 3,000 degrees until it turns into a gas. That's about how far Saddam Hussein got in Iraq. As news of Saddam Hussein's execution spreads across the globe, reactions within Iraq are mixed. Then you pump it into a centrifuge and you spin it at almost the speed of sound until the rum and coke start to separate. You scoop the coke off the top and gradually you're left with something that's more like 80% pure rum. Once you've done that, you've got weapons-grade enriched uranium. That's as far as Muammar Gaddafi got in Libya. We don't have confirmation yet that Colonel Gaddafi has been captured or killed, but the people here in Tripoli certainly believe that. You could then you chuck it in a bomb and test it. Then you load it in a missile. And you're done. Instant international respect. People will think twice about messing with you now. Two of America's enemies, Iran and North Korea, have spent decades trying to work their way through this process. Donald Trump's promise to make America strong again included plans to deal with two terrifying nuclear threats. And despite tremendous pressure and the spectre of war, Donald Trump has kept the peace. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is America If You're Listening, a podcast about how Donald Trump changed the United States and the world. There are nine countries with nuclear weapons. The US, China, France, Pakistan, Russia, the UK, India, probably Israel, and... North Korea. Way back in 2006, they'd pulled the rum out of the rum and coke and were ready to show everyone that they had themselves a completed bomb. At the time, John Bolton was a senior member of the Bush administration and issued North Korean leader Kim Jong-il with a warning. That they should not test this nuclear device and that if they do test it, it will be a very different world the day after the test. Kim Jong-il decided that a different world sounded pretty good to him. All we can tell from our records is that this is a seismic event. On the morning of the 9th of October 2006, American seismologists detected the earth shaking under a North Korean mountain range. We can 
cannot tell from our records whether it's an earthquake or a, a nuclear explosion or something like that. It was a nuclear explosion. Just a little one. Set off in a tunnel under a mountain which was about to get bumped around quite a lot. A 5.1 magnitude earthquake has hit roughly 20 kilometres away from the North Pungeri nuclear test site. By the time Donald Trump was elected president 10 years later, they had detonated four more bombs under that same mountain and had completed essentially every step of the how to make a nuclear weapon checklist, except the one where you put it onto a missile and send it somewhere. Barack Obama warned Donald Trump in their private handover meeting at the White House that North Korea would be the most urgent problem he had to deal with as president. The thing about North Korea is that they are very, very different to every other country, in that they are not at all a proper country. They are an insane, failed clash between communism and a monarchy with an economy smaller than Tasmania's. There is no diversity of opinion. There is just the Kims. Anyone who disagrees with them ends up dead. Despite this, early in his presidency, Donald Trump was quite complimentary of Kim Jong-un. He was a young man of 26 or 27 when he took over from his father, when his father died. And at a very young age, he was able to assume power. A lot of people, I'm sure, tried to take that power away, whether it was his uncle or anybody else. And he was able to do it. Kim Jong-un, as I'm sure Trump knows, apparently killed his uncle by shooting him with a cannon. So obviously he's a pretty smart cookie. Kim Jong-un observed the chaotic first few months of Trump's presidency and being a smart cookie made a decision to see if he could manipulate that chaos to his advantage. But first he had a problem, a hostage problem. My name is Otto Frederick Wormbeer. I am 21 years old. I am a student of finance at the University of Virginia. Otto Warmbier was a popular and studious kid. He was prom and homecoming king, a talented athlete, and gave the salutatorian address at his high school graduation. Looking around, we know the names of pretty much everyone sitting up here. That's the product of going to a small school. We also know much of their deep secrets and failed relationships. That's the product of living in a small town with a not-so-small gossip problem. In his short life, he'd travelled a lot and had developed a fascination with different cultures. In early 2016, he'd organised to attend a study abroad program in Hong Kong. But on his way, he decided to make a stopover. He booked a tour of North Korea with a budget travel company based in China. They were called Young Pioneer Tours. Slogan, destinations your mother would rather you stayed away from. So in late December 2015, Otto and 10 other Americans flew from Beijing to the North Korean capital Pyongyang. On New Year's Eve, the tour group watched a fireworks display in Pyongyang's main square. Hey, Troy! They ate food and drank beer and then returned to their hotel rooms. That's when Otto is accused of stealing a propaganda poster from his hotel as a souvenir. The next day, as he went through immigration control at Pyongyang Airport, Otto was arrested. Danny Grattan was also on the tour and was standing next to Otto when they grabbed him. He was tapped on his shoulder by a guard. Uh, no words were spoken. We got on so well, I sort of sort of laughed towards Otto and said, well, we, we mightn't, mightn't see you again. Of course, I didn't realise the irony of them words. 
Weeks later, Otto finally gave a televised statement from where he was detained in North Korea. On January 1st, 2016, New Year's Day, I committed severe crimes against both the people and the government of the DPR Korea. He said he'd been coerced into his crime by the US government. The aim of this crime was to harm the work ethic and motivation of the Korean people. This was a very foolish aim. He cried and begged for his freedom. I entirely beg you, people and government of the DPR Korea, for your forgiveness. Please, I have made the worst mistake of my life. Please, think of my family. North Korea sentenced Otto to 15 years hard labour. Subsequent reports suggested that Otto had been physically beaten and tortured by guards. But according to extensive research by award-winning writer Doug Bock-Clark, it's likely Otto attempted suicide almost immediately and fell into a coma he would never wake up from. North Korean doctors cared for him excellently while the regime figured out what they could convince the US to trade him for. Barack Obama had failed to secure Otto's release. Officials sent to negotiate with North Korea got the impression the regime was waiting to see who won the 2016 US presidential election, hoping to get a better deal. Soon after Trump took office, communication began. A State Department official was approved to pay North Korea a ransom, sorry, a medical bill. I did sign a letter of assurance that the United States government would pay in medical expenses, some $2 million. Trump denies that the money was ever paid. Otto was flown home on an American plane in June. His parents said goodbye and turned off his life support. Where they were so happy to see him, even though he was in very tough condition, but he just passed away a little while ago. It's a brutal regime, and we'll be able to handle it. Handling it was about to become much, much more difficult. Because while negotiations over Otto's release were going on, North Korea was still working on the nuclear program. In July 2017, North Korean newsreader Ri Chun-hee announced that Kim Jong-un scientists had finally developed missiles that could reach the United States. Later that month, US intelligence indicated that they had also figured out how to make their nuclear weapons light enough to fit on these new missiles. Any goodwill Trump had towards North Korea disappeared. Virtually unprompted, he issued a terrifying threat. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. North Korea responded by threatening Guam, the closest bit of the US to North Korea, with an enveloping fire. They fired two missiles over Japan, setting off their missile warning sirens. Then they tested their biggest bomb yet. Just hours after showing off what was said to be a hydrogen bomb capable of fitting on an intercontinental missile, seismographs start dancing from this remote site, an underground North Korean nuclear test shaking the earth. That explosion was so big, it basically blew apart the mountain North Korea had been using for years to test their bombs. Trump responded at the United Nations. The United States has great strength and patience. 
But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. He then went on to issue personal insults to Kim Jong-un. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. Kim insulted Trump back, calling him senile and a lunatic. By this stage, some kind of conflict with North Korea seemed inevitable. In the following weeks, the US Air Force began secretly bombing the Ozark Mountains of Missouri, which apparently resemble North Korean geography. They were rehearsing for a potential surgical strike to kill Kim Jong-un. But there's a big problem with picking a fight with North Korea, and it doesn't really have anything to do with nuclear weapons. Trump's chief strategist Steve Bannon called reporter Robert Kuttner and explained it. If you fight with North Korea, you put South Koreans at risk. He said, unless someone can explain to me how 10 million South Koreans in greater Seoul are not going to be killed by conventional weapons in the first 30 minutes, then th- this talk of war is, is not sensible. See, North Korea has an enormous arsenal of artillery weapons pointed at the South Korean capital of Seoul that can be set off at any second. Once that was explained to Trump, he reportedly suggested moving the city of Seoul, population 25 million, out of the way of the artillery. Neither side wanted nuclear war, but both were desperate to show that they were willing to do it if pushed. It was a game of nuclear chicken between Trump and Kim, and it was unclear who would pull out first. But then Kim surprised everyone by thawing the tension. On New Year's Day 2018, he made a very strange speech with pre-recorded applause, announcing that he was considering sending athletes to the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea. South Korean President Moon Jae-in, who had been elected on a platform of building warmer relations with their scary northern neighbour, jumped on the opportunity, negotiating an agreement where both North and South Korea would march together at the opening ceremony. Delegations of the Korean Sport and Olympic Committee and the Olympic Committee of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea marching together as Korea. In a moment of high tension, Kim saw an opportunity to be taken seriously not just as a nuclear-armed madman, but as a world leader. Donald Trump seized the moment and attempted to take credit for it. Right now they're talking Olympics. It's a start. It's a big start. If I weren't involved, they wouldn't be talking about Olympics right now. They'd be doing no talking or they would be much more serious. At the closing ceremony, Kim's representatives said they were open to a dialogue with the United States about potentially giving up their nuclear weapons program. Trump and Moon started angling towards a peace summit with Kim Jong-un. For a brief period of time, in the first few months of 2018, things seemed to be looking very good, and Trump had his eye on the Nobel Peace Prize. Kim Jong-un even released three American hostages, not just alive, but in good health. Donald Trump may have been on the precipice of eliminating the risk of nuclear war with North Korea, at least in the short term, and this suited Trump perfectly. Because despite the fire and fury rhetoric, Trump has a strong gut impulse against getting into conflict of any type. 
In 2002, he was less than enthusiastic about the prospect of the US going to war in Iraq. Are you for invading Iraq? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, I wish it was. I, I wish the first time it was done correctly. During the 2016 campaign, Trump attacked George W. Bush's administration for getting into the war at all. George Bush made a mistake. We so, can make mistakes, but that one was a beauty. We should have never been in Iraq. They lied. Okay. They said there were weapons of mass destruction. There were none, and they knew there were none. Trump promised that if elected, he would end the American tradition of starting endless wars. I'm proud to have the support of war-fighting generals, active-duty military, and top experts who know both how to win and how to avoid endless wars that we're caught up in, like the one we have right now that just never, ever ends our longest war. When he was elected president, he brought in a number of people who shared that point of view as National Security Advisor and Secretaries of State, Defence and Homeland Security. They became known as the Axis of Adults and were more inclined towards negotiation and diplomacy than airstrikes and ground invasions. The Axis of Adults were for maintaining America's alliances and against new wars. But in March 2018, just when peace seemed closer than ever, there was a significant shift. Some of the old guard from the Axis of Adults left and there was a new sheriff in town, National Security Advisor John Bolton. And suddenly, keeping the peace became a lot harder. John Bolton was a powerful figure in the George W. Bush administration and involved in the beginning of the war in Iraq. On top of that, he's called for starting wars in other places as well. So you've, you've called for regime change in Iraq, Libya, Iran, and Syria. In the first two countries, we've had regime change, and obviously it's been, I'd say a disaster. I think no, we agree. No, no, I, I don't agree with that. A million dead Iraqis, destabilization of the region, rise of ISIS. Trump says it was a disaster, but it's not a disaster, apparently. Well, I think the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, that military action was a resounding success. Bolton was a regular commentator on Fox News, advocating against doing deals with North Korea. Question, how do you know that the North Korean regime is lying? Answer, their lips are moving. Mm -hmm. They're not going to give up uh, the achieving this objective. Why would they agree? Why would they propose talks now? Because they want to buy time. Less than a month after making those comments, John Bolton was Trump's national security advisor. He made a splash very quickly. He went on TV and said something which potentially wrecked any chance Trump had of making a deal with North Korea. And we have very much in mind the Libya model from 2003-2004. John Bolton said on multiple TV shows that the US and the President wanted North Korea to abide by the Libya model, meaning show us that you've given up your nuclear weapons and we'll stop sanctioning you. It's a great gesture, but as Kim Jong-un knows very well, the Libyan dictator who gave up his nuclear weapons was subsequently overthrown in a revolution and is now very, very dead. Kim was suddenly not so keen. Trump panicked and tried to clean that up. Well, the Libyan model isn't a model that we have at all when we're thinking of North Korea. Bolton clearly opposed the US-Korea peace talks and must have known these comments would cause a problem. And they did. Three weeks later, Trump met with Kim Jong-un in Singapore in a summit-slash-circus. 
Destiny Pictures presents a story of opportunity. Trump sat Kim down and played him a movie trailer style video showing an exciting new world if the two could find a way to work together. One Destiny. A story about a special moment in time. Trump said he had personally ordered the video to be made and that Kim was very impressed. Featuring President Donald Trump and Chairman Kim Jong-un in a meeting to remake history, to shine in the sun. One moment, one choice. What if? The future remains to be written. The President of the United States followed that by lavishing praise on North Korea's murderous, human rights abusing, global pariah dictator. Well, he is very talented. Anybody that takes over a situation like he did at 26 years of age and is able to run it. Very few people at that age, you can take one out of 10,000 probably couldn't do it. This was a gift to Kim Jong-un. Better propaganda than North Korean media could ever come up with. And he gave up nothing in return. No Libyan model, no denuclearization. Ever since, Trump has had nothing but great things to say about Kim. And then we fell in love, okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters. And they're great letters. We fell in love. Trump also defends Kim from criticism, saying, ridiculously, that he didn't think Kim Jong-un knew about Otto Warmbier's situation. I don't believe that he would have allowed that to happen. just wasn't to his advantage to allow that to happen. He tells me that he didn't know about it, and I will take him at his word. And what did Trump get in return for all of this? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. North Korea has not given up their nuclear weapons or their missile program at all. He achieved no denuclearization deal. But at the same time, he managed to get down off the ledge of fire and fury. There was no nuclear war. See, Donald Trump does not like conflict. He talks tough, but when push comes to shove, he avoids war at all costs. But as of early 2018, he had John Bolton in his ear, and Bolton had his eye set on Iran. Remember the nine countries who have nuclear weapons? US, China, France, Pakistan, Russia, the UK, India, probably Israel, and... North Korea. You'll notice that Iran is not one of those countries, but it desperately wants to be. On the eve of crucial negotiations about its nuclear program, Iran has succeeded in speeding up production of enriched uranium. While Kim Jong-un is willing to starve his people to get a nuke, Iran, being a proper country, is more willing to negotiate in good faith. After seven years of wrangling, Barack Obama, along with the European Union, China and Russia, managed to strike a... Comprehensive, long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Iran would get $100 billion of sanctioned assets back in exchange for them proving to inspectors that they weren't making a bomb. And if Iran violates the deal, all these sanctions will snap back into place. So that was the deal. It was set up to last for a decade. Obama was happy, Iran was happy, Europe was happy, John Bolton was not happy. They will get nuclear weapons whether they sign this deal that's on the table now or not. Uh, They're on a path to do it. It's entirely within their control. Uh, And I don't believe they're ever going to give up their 30-year-long quest for nuclear weapons. Now, there is literally no deal that Bolton will accept with Iran. No matter what the terms, they will never be good enough. I have said for over 10 years since coming to these events 
that the declared policy of the United States of America should be the overthrow of the Mullah's regime. And to Bolton, the only solution is to overthrow the Iranian government. But overthrowing the Iranian government is so much harder than the other governments Bolton has attempted to overthrow. Iran is not Syria or Iraq. It's a big, rich, sophisticated country with an ancient culture and a cohesive population. Iran is a scary country that does terrible things, don't get me wrong. But they are a multicultural, semi-open country with a population of more than 80 million. Going to war with them would be much, much, much deadlier for everyone involved than going to war with Iraq or Afghanistan or both. And yet in 2017, John Bolton was ready to go for it. The behaviour and the objectives of the regime are not going to change, and therefore the only solution is to change the regime itself. And that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. Trump wasn't quite on board with that part, but he did hate Obama's Iran deal. I've been doing deals for a long time. I've been making lots of wonderful deals, great deals. That's what I do. Never, ever, ever in my life have I seen any transaction so incompetently negotiated as our deal with Iran. In the first year of Trump's presidency, the axis of adults had prevented him from ripping up the deal. But in 2018, they were gone replaced by John Bolton. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Trump reimposed the sanctions on Iran that the deal had relaxed, putting a crushing weight on Iran's economy once again. Bolton announced that the US was prepared for war why the White House is ordering the USS Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Group to the Middle East. National Security Advisor John Bolton says it's in response to troubling warnings from Iran. Iran announced that they would gradually get their centrifuges running and start getting more rum out of the rum and coke. Start making weapons-grade uranium, I mean. Meanwhile, the Iranian military started shooting things. A Japanese oil tanker was attacked by Iran. Four vessels in the Persian Gulf were, in their words, sabotaged. And now military sources say Iran fired a surface-to-air missile at an American drone. When a $15 million American drone was shot out of the sky, it became clear the ramp-up towards some kind of confrontation had started. And two weeks later, when Iran shot down a $200 million drone, things got scary. Bolton and the new axis of not-adults took a plan to Trump to bomb three Iranian military sites in retaliation. All of his advisors, all of them, uh, recommended retaliating for the strike against the American drone. But Trump asked them a question. They came and they said, sir, we're ready to go. We'd like a decision. I said, I want to know something before you go. How many people will be killed? In this case, Iranians. Mm -hmm. The answer was enough to spook the president came back, said, sir, approximately 150. And I thought about it for a second. And I said, you know what? They shot down an unmanned uh, drone. Mm -hmm. And here we are sitting with 150 dead people. And I didn't like it. I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was proportionate. Donald Trump backed down. He decided against further retaliation. Once again, a war was avoided. 
Publicly, Bolton defended Trump's decision and said it didn't mean that Iran was off the hook. Neither Iran nor any other hostile actor should mistake U.S. prudence and discretion for weakness. No one has granted them a hunting license in the Middle East. But privately, Bolton was outraged. In his book published this year, he called it the most irrational thing I ever witnessed any president do. At that moment, he decided to resign. Trump would claim that he didn't resign because he was fired. After hiring Bolton and keeping him there for a year and a half, Trump was suddenly roasting him for being a warmonger. John's known as a tough guy. He's so tough he got us into Iraq. Mr. Tough Guy, you know, you have to go into Iraq. Going into Iraq was something that he felt very strongly about. Bolton was gone, and Trump had no plan for what to do. Iran was now actively demixing rum and coke, and he had made it clear that he wasn't going to invade them. Suddenly, Trump started talking about a new Iran deal. Uh, they ha- we're not looking for regime change. Uh, we hope that we can make a deal, and if we can't make a deal, that's fine too. French President Emmanuel Macron pounced. He'd been trying to prop up Obama's Iran deal, and he now saw an opening for Trump to make a new deal which was just different enough that he could claim it as his own. Two weeks after Bolton's departure, Macron was standing outside Iranian President Hassan Rouhani's New York hotel room, knocking and asking him to come out. He had Trump on the phone, willing to make a new deal. Rouhani refused. Unlike Kim Jong-un, He's not that interested in a photo opportunity and some good propaganda at home. In his view, the fire and fury American president can't be trusted. And yet... Do I want war? I don't want war with anybody. I'm somebody that would like not to have war. In 2012, as Barack Obama was seeking re-election, a New York businessman made a prediction. Our president will start a war with Iran because he has absolutely no ability to negotiate. Donald Trump was convinced that to stir up support, Obama would send the US into another war. I believe that he will attack Iran sometime prior to the election because he thinks that's the only way he can get elected. Isn't it pathetic? During Donald Trump's first year in office, he could have been forgiven for thinking he might take America down that road. But he didn't. The US is not at war with anyone it wasn't already at war with on the day Trump took over from Barack Obama. And there were so many provocations from Iran and North Korea that other presidents may have taken the bait offered by John Bolton and friends. But Trump, despite wanting to seem like a military-loving tough guy, never did. He promised to make America strong again. And while the United States has not denuclearized North Korea and now has no deal with Iran, he has brought about a significant change in how America is seen around the world. For the last 70 years, from Central America to Korea to Vietnam to Iraq, the US has cultivated a reputation as the world's policeman. And while Donald Trump has occasionally ventured into that terrain, he has mostly stuck to his gut instinct that war is a bad idea. And in the eyes of people who oppose American imperialism, that gut instinct has turned out to be one of Trump's most significant strengths. America, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. 
It's produced by Yasmin Parry and Will Ockenden. Research assistance for this episode was from Paul Bevan. Next, pretty much everyone in America is convinced that the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia was responsible for the killing of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. You have to be willfully blind not to come to the conclusion that he was intricately involved in the demise of Mr Khashoggi. And Donald Trump has a history of making harsh comments about Saudi Arabia. Who blew up the World Trade Center? It wasn't the Iraqis, it was Saudi. Take a look at Saudi Arabia, open the documents. So how did he end up taking the side of the Crown Prince? And what role did his own Crown Prince, Jared Kushner, have in the saga? The Crown Prince is boasting that Kushner was, quote, in his pocket. That's next on America If You're Listening.